Turn, if you would, to, um, to John chapter 13. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 31 uh, through the end of the chapter, verse 38. Before I read that, over the, over the last um, several years, red letter editions of the Bible seem to have fallen out of favor. Um, there are a few reasons for this, a few reasons that red letter editions have fallen out of favor. Some of them are good reasons, uh, translation reasons. Some of them are a little bit more reactionary. So, for example, uh, a good reason to shy away from a red-letter Bible where the, where the publisher prints the words of Christ in red, a, a good reason to shy away from one is because, because there are instances in Bible translation where it's actually not clear if Jesus is doing the talking or, or it's someone else. So, for example, uh, John chapter 3, verses 16 to 21. Uh, earlier in that passage, Jesus is clearly having a conversation with Nicodemus about his need to be born again. You remember the story of John chapter 3. But it's entirely possible that in verse 16, John, our narrator, takes over and kind of more more fully explains the things that Jesus has been saying, which is something that actually happens a lot in John's gospel. Yet we can agree that whether John wrote it or Jesus said it, ultimately it's the Word of God and has the same authority either way. It doesn't change the meaning in any way if it was spoken by John or by Jesus. Similarly, there are some who would tell us that we, we shouldn't use red-letter editions because there are, there are some groups of Christians, people, who would esteem the red letters as having higher value, higher authority than the black letters. They would say that the, the words of Christ have more significance and more weight than, say, the words of Paul or John or Moses. In fact, there's a group of red-letter Christians, they call themselves, who actively teach this, that the, the red letters have more um, authority than the black. But since all of the words, no matter what color they're printed in, all of the Word of God are the very words of God, they have equal weight and authority over us. So Paul doesn't have any less authority, really, than Jesus. It's the Word of God. These are good arguments. Um, There are others, too, that should be considered. But I will admit to you this morning that my favorite, my preaching Bible, the Bible I use up here every Sunday, is a a red-letter Bible. My favorite Bible is actually one that I keep in my truck. I bring with me whenever I go anywhere. That's also a a red-letter Bible. And I like my red-letter Bibles because, generally speaking, at a glance, I can look and see who's talking. And usually it's right. Usually that's accurate. Usually I can look and see really quickly if it's Jesus saying these things or someone else. Um, So if you have a a red-letter Bible, if you happen to have one, you can see, and this is the one instance where I wish all of you had a red-letter Bible, just so that you could open John's Gospel to chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16, and 17, and see that most of the words are read. 
Most of the things in these chapters are words spoken by Jesus, especially between John 13, 31 and and the end of chapter 17. There are a few comments and questions in those chapters, but mostly from here through the end of chapter 17 is Jesus doing the talking. It is Jesus speaking. And so this section is uh, what theologians have historically called the, the farewell discourse. This is where Jesus gives his final instructions to the people that God has entrusted to him. This is this farewell discourse, the people that he's talking to. It's a small, intimate gathering. There are times in John's gospel where Jesus preaches to multitudes of people. There are times when there are so many people and they're, they're pressing in on him that he has to get out into a boat and, and move out onto the sea so that he can better address the people, but, but not this time. This time it's just a dozen men in a room having dinner. It's just Jesus and the eleven. It's just the Messiah, the Savior, and his disciples who have left everything to follow him. He's cleansed their feet, and and he has cleansed his church. Judas has gone out into the night, and so Jesus now lays out his final instructions, his final assurances. And so as it says in the first verse of John chapter 13, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. And this is Jesus teaching them that he loves them. So let's kind of zoom out for a moment, and I want to give you a big picture outline of Jesus' teaching here throughout this farewell discourse. Then we're going to look at all of this over the coming weeks. So he begins here in today's passage, John 13, 31 to 38. He tells them that he's going, he's going away, but his followers cannot follow him immediately. This raises a couple of questions. There's a little bit of the black letters in the midst of this. Raises a couple of questions in the disciples. But in chapter 14, he continues by explaining that he is the way to the Father. He's going. You can't come right now, but I am the way. And the Father and the Son, he would go on to say in chapter 14, are going to send another helper. He's going to revisit the concept of another helper in the first half of chapter 16. But in chapter 15, he's going to explain that his disciples, I'm going away, I am the way to the Father, I am going to send another helper, but you must remain in chapter 15 close to him, as close as a branch is to a vine. And while the world will hate them as it has hated him, they must remain steadfast, knowing, as the second half of chapter 16 tells us, knowing that the sorrow that they will soon experience will ultimately turn into joy. Then in chapter 17, he prays for them. He prays for his people. It's often called Jesus' high priestly prayer because Jesus intercedes for them in a way that only he, as the great high priest who has passed through the heavens, in a way that only he can pray. So let's zoom back in on today's passage, John 13, 31 to 38. So as I said, if you, have a, if you happen to have a red letter edition of Scripture, you're going to notice that there are a few black letters in these verses. Peter's going to ask two questions, and then he's going to make a bold statement. 
One that will eventually come true, but not as he would expect. So let me read this. John 13, verses 31 to 38 says this. When he had gone out, that is Judas, when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Father, help us to understand. Help us to understand what you would say to us as we look at your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. One of, the, one of the concepts or the, the ideas that we should remember as we read through this, and really even as we read through this entire farewell discourse, these several chapters of John's gospel, one of the, the ideas that we need to remember is that, that Jesus has two views of the future. He has a short view and he has a long view. So in the short view of the future, he's going to be leaving them in this life. He's going to be going to the cross where he will suffer and die. And at this point, they cannot follow him. He, he's not going to permit them to be arrested and executed with him. That's what he's telling them there. Of course, later, history will tell us that, that most likely all of the eleven, probably except John himself, but most likely the rest of the eleven, so ten of them, are going to be arrested and executed for preaching the gospel. And John himself certainly was arrested numerous times, even in the book of Acts, and probably died in agony in exile. But they're all going to be executed for preaching the gospel. They're going to follow him afterward, but not yet, as he says here. But the long view... The long view is that he's also talking about the glory of heaven. He is going to be leaving them. He's going to ascend to the Father's right hand. And where he, where, where he is going, they cannot follow. Not yet. They will follow later. But until then, there is much work to be done, he says. Well, we have an advantage that these disciples, the eleven here, did not have. And that is that we are able to read these words on this side of Resurrection Sunday. We're able to read these words looking back at history, looking back through the lens of the cross. We can read these words through the, through the lens of the, of the empty tomb. This is close to how Jesus himself saw this moment. He knew that he was going to triumph over sin and death. He knew that he would defeat Satan. 
He knew that that his heel would be bruised, to allude to the promise of Genesis 3.15, but he also knew that he would crush the head of the serpent. But the eleven, those who are here with him at the supper, at this moment, they're looking around, they're looking at society around them. They're seeing the tension that is in and around the city of Jerusalem. They knew that the Pharisees have an, an arrest warrant out for Christ. They knew that, that he has been saying now for, for several chapters in John's gospel here, he has been saying now that his time for glorification is near, which they thought meant that he was going to ascend to David's throne, which he did in fact mean, but not in the way that they thought he meant. They were looking for an earthly king, and he was a king of so much more than simply an earthly king. The eleven saw the battle. They see the battle uh, uh, between the old religion of the Pharisees and, the, and a new way. And, and they knew that the Pharisees were seeking to arrest him and to kill him. Uh, but they had also seen and heard that a large crowd had come to the feast. And they'd heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And so this large crowd took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. This had happened just a few days earlier. Large crowds proclaiming him king. They'd even even heard that Gentiles had come to at least one of them and said, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. But the eleven here, they have a, a small, they have small limited minds. They're still concerned with the land and the Roman occupation. They want the Roman soldiers out. They want the Roman government out of there. They're still thinking about a king and a kingdom. They're thinking about the glory of, of leading a people in revolution, even, even to the point of laying down their own lives as glorious heroes for their countrymen. There is little in this life that is more noble than that. There's little in this life that is more noble than laying down your life for your friends, for your country. But Jesus has a much bigger plan. He's a bigger plan for a bigger kingdom. It's not simply going to be the kingdom of David. It's not going to simply be the kingdom of Judah or Israel or even a reunited kingdom of of Israel. It's going to be the kingdom of God. This is going to be the kingdom of heaven. He's not simply going to overthrow the Romans. He's going to overthrow all of sin and death. And so as he tells them that they can't follow him immediately, he tells them first a truth, then he gives them a command And then he issues a a personal warning. So I want to look at each of these things. A truth, a command, and a warning. So let's start with the truth that he tells them here. This is the truth. Remember, the eleven don't know why Judas has left. They don't know where Judas is going. They don't know which one of them will end up betraying him. And in fact, Luke chapter 22, verse 24, gives us a little bit of background information that during this very dinner, a dispute arose also among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. So while Judas leaves, Jesus has washed their feet. At some point at this dinner, 
The eleven are arguing about which one is the greatest, which one of them should be seated at his right and at his left in his kingdom. That happens at this very same dinner. And so while they're arguing over which disciple is the greatest, Jesus and Judas share an important moment between the two of them. Judas leaves and he he finalizes his plans for betrayal. And after he left, Jesus speaks to his disciples about his glory and his departure. So look at verse 31. Now, he had gone out. Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while and I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus is telling him here that his his own person and work is deeply connected with the glory of God. It's deeply connected with the glory of God. In those first couple of verses there, 31 and 32, he uses glory like four times. Glory or or glorifying God is one of the highest themes, maybe the highest theme in all of Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 31 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Paul tells us, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. This is man's chief end. This is the, the point of all things. This is the point of all Scripture. This is the point even of all creation. Psalm 19, verse 1, The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. The point of creation is to glorify God. But even as Jesus begins with His own royal title here, He says, Now is the, the Son of Man is glorified. The Son of Man is a royal title. Even as he begins this way, he's continuing to speak of the cross. Remember what he said back in chapter 12 when he started talking again about glorification? In chapter 12 he says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls in the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loses his life, uh, loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus starts with his own life. Here he says, now is the Son of Man glorified. Now that Judas has left. Now that the church has been purified. Now the time has come. Now is the time for the Son of Man to be lifted up. John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, he uses this idea of being lifted up. He says to Nicodemus, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. And so Jesus is saying that now, now we will see the ultimate display of His glory. Now we will see His death. Now we will see His resurrection. Now we will see His ascension. But the irony of ironies is this. He sees glorification on the cross. The cross is not glorious. Not to anybody living in the Roman Empire. The cross is not glorious. But Jesus says that his being lifted up is being lifted up onto the cross, really only to be laid low into the grave. And he's talking about glory. Glory. 
in the eyes of men, his crucifixion would be the lowest form of humiliation, the opposite of glorification. It would be the lowest form of humiliation. The soldiers will mock him. They will, they will wrap him in, in royal purple robes uh, and they will crown him with thorns. The very curse of the earth will be a crown on his head. They're going to spit on him while pretending to worship, making a mockery. They're going to bow down in sarcasm and, and mockery and they will proclaim, Hail, King of the Jews. But in reality... The cross is actually man's biggest humiliation. It's actually man's biggest humiliation, not Christ's. God sent His only begotten Son, the the bread of life, the light of the world, and sinful men loves darkness rather than light because our works are evil. Do you know why this is man's humiliation? Because every man will be brought low. Every knee will bow, and and most, most will do so unwillingly. And see here in these verses, both God and Jesus, the Father and the Son, they're both glorified in Christ's work. Look at it again. This kind of goes around here. So listen carefully. Verse 31. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him at once. They're both glorified in Christ's work. Christ is glorified in His perfect obedience, and the Father glorifies the Son. Their glory is inseparable. The Father Father delights to grant the Son's requests. He delights to answer the Son's prayers because the Son always lives to please the Father. And so ultimately, Philippians chapter 2 verses 9 to 11 says, Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus then every knee should bow, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, we are told to be looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, where, as 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 22 explains, he has gone into the heavens and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is, this is sinful man's humiliation. What we are about to see when he goes to the cross that next day, is sinful man's humiliation because one day we will stand before Jesus. We will stand before that very Jesus, the one and the same. And he will either say, depart from me, or he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. And these verses, verses 31 and 32, they're they're kind of awkwardly, you want to, Acknowledge this, they're awkwardly worded in English because Jesus is speaking of past, present, and future glory all at the same time. 
But not only is it past, present, and future glory, it's past, present, and future glory of the Father and the Son. Each one glorifying the other. See, the, the glory of God, glory in the Father, the Son, and as we will see as the chapter unfolds, or as, the, um, as, as this scene unfolds, glory in the Spirit as well, the, the glory of God is not constrained. It's not constrained by time, certainly. J.C. Ryle, we haven't quoted him in a while. He was the Bishop of Liverpool. Um, he died in 1900, so in the 1800s. He said this, The Son shows the world by His death how holy and just is the Father and how He hates sin. The Father shows the world by raising and exalting the Son to glory how He delights in the redemption of sinners which the Son has accomplished. And yet while the glory of God is not constrained by time, we are. We are constrained by space and time. So, verse 33, he calls them little children. He says, little children, yet a little while I am with you and you will seek me, just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Little children, he loves them. This is a term of affection from a man who's old enough to be their older brother. Little children, in a matter of hours... And then again, in a matter of weeks, he's going to be leaving them. His time has come. We know that this means that he's about to die. We know this means that after his resurrection, he, he will ascend to the Father's side. But the disciples can't conceive of such a thing. And so he tells them that, that they're going to be looking for him, but they, they cannot go with him. In fact, Acts chapter 1 tells us, that they were in fact looking for him. In fact, they stood there with their mouths open, looking at heaven, staring up into the sky as Jesus has ascended from them, looking for him. But they couldn't go with him because there is much work for them to do. And as he says, the Jews, that is the Jewish leadership, they've already heard this, he says. He says, as I said to the Jews... Um, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. He's actually said this to the Jewish leadership twice. And both times, the reason that he gives the leadership of the Jews, the reason that he gives them for them not being able to go with him is because they didn't actually know him. So he says this in both chapter 7 and chapter 8. And in chapter 8 he says this, this is to the Jewish leadership. He says, where I am going, you cannot come. And then he says to them, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Where I am going, you cannot come. Unless you believe that I am he, the Savior, the Messiah, the Christ, you will die in your sins. But for the disciples, for these 11, he's not saying that they're never going to join him with the Father in eternity. Rather that from here on out, how he is going to relate to them is going to change. Let me, let me give you a glimpse of this. How Jesus will relate to his disciples is going to change. Jump down to chapter 14, verses 18 and 19. So with this idea of him leaving them, in John 14, 18, he says, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. 
And this, of course, develops throughout these chapters as he explains these things. He's going to reveal more and more of what he means, and including he will talk about this helper who will come. And so in verse 7 of chapter 16, he says this, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him for you. Now, now, he's just getting them ready for that bombshell. The idea that there is another helper that he and the Father are going to send to his people is going to be a bombshell for them. They're not going to understand until later. For now, he's just getting them ready. So understand this about what he is saying to them in verse 33. He's telling them that when he goes from them, he's not going to simply go out into the night like Judas did. He's not going to just simply burn out into the darkness. Instead, he's actually going to lead the way. He's going to shine in the darkness. He's going to shine as a light into the darkness. He's saying that that in his new kingdom, in his new glory, uh, one of the ways that his disciples will bring his light into the world, he even tells them now, is with love. This is not a suggestion, it's a command. Let's pick this up with, he tells them the truth, and then he gives them this command. This is a new commandment. Verse 34, he says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In what way is this a new commandment? This concept is it's part of God's law. In fact, Leviticus 19.18, this is commanded explicitly. So this is part of God's law. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18 says this, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This was, this was seen as a, as a fundamental rule of life for the people of God. And when Jesus is asked what were, his, what were the most important commandments, what is the chief commandment, this was part of his answer. And even his enemies agreed with him. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Even, even the Pharisees agreed, yeah, that's a good summary of the law. Jesus has just demonstrated for his disciples, he's just demonstrated his love for them to the end by washing his feet. And so in what way is this a new command? It seems as though this is something that has existed from the beginning of the law. I think that there are three ways, three ways in which this is a new command, but, but first we need to call this love here for what it is, this love that he's describing in these couple of verses. This is, this is a specifically a Christ-like love. This is specifically Christian love. And so the first of the three ways in which this Christian love is new is that it has a new baseline. It has a new standard. No longer is the standard simply the law. He tells them to love one another as I have loved you. And as they will find out in the days to come, over the next couple of days, he has loved them by laying down his life for them. Very soon he will say to them in chapter 
15, he will say, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Then in Romans chapter 5, Paul will explain verses 6, 7, and 8. He says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The Apostle John here, he loves to write about love. He writes as one who has been moved by the love of Christ. He couldn't have been clearer as he kind of put all of this together in his first epistle, his first letter. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. John says it a little softer than Jesus does. Jesus is a new commandment I give you. Love one another. John says we, we, ought, to, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Or think of the majestic paragraph that John writes in chapter 4 of his first letter. He says, Beloved, or loved ones, let us love one another. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, loved ones, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one's ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. To love one another as he has loved us is to love one another to the end. It's to love one another through betrayal. It's to love one another through suffering and hardship to the end, to their end, to your end, and to all of eternity. That's what it means to love one another as Christ has loved us. Richard Phillips, in his commentary on John's gospel, he says this, I like this quote. He says, true Christian love involves a long sequence of little deaths as we set aside our own pride, our own preferences, our own sense of privilege. Jesus laid down his rights for our salvation, and we are to lay down whatever we think we are entitled to for the sake of our fellow Christians and the church. This is where we apply 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Think of just verses 4 to 7. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Love never ends. The law of Christian love has a new standard. That standard is the Father sending the Son to lay down His life. It is new in that it has a new standard, Christ. But it's also new in that it, has, it actually has a new object. The love one another's has a new object. 
You see, under the, under the old law, which the people of Israel uh, were under, were, were bound to, under the old law, the people of Israel were called to love their neighbors. Specifically, that verse, Leviticus 19.18, defines their neighbors as the sons of your own people, fellow Israelites. That's what the law there says. And the whole context of the, of the book of the law, God's covenant is with national ethnic Israel. But the death of Christ opens up salvation to the world. The death of Christ opens up salvation to Jew and Gentile. And as a result, the law of Christian love now includes any believer from any class, any ethnicity, any nationality. Or as Galatians chapter 3 will say, For in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. In our day, you can't help but watch or listen to the news, and you will keep hearing talk of racism. You will keep hearing talk of nationalism. But Christians are bound together in love. A love that is like Christ, a love that transcends all of that. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Paul says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, Gentiles who were outside of God's people, You have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. See, the law of Christian love, it has a new standard, Jesus. The law of Christian love has new objects, all who are in Christ. And the law of Christian love has actually also been given new power. It's been given new power through Jesus's death and resurrection. This is a new commandment in that it has been given new power as well. Jesus' explanation of the the source of this new power will will really take up a lot of the rest of this farewell discourse. So what I'm saying is he's going to teach them about the coming of the Holy Spirit, which is the source of the power. But for today, know this. We will get into the rest of it as this unfolds. But for today, I want you to understand this. When a sinner is born again, when a person trusts and believes in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit brings the power of love into that person's life. It's from the Holy Spirit. Here's why I'm saying this. Because this is what makes genuine Christian love possible. Contrary to popular belief, not all of us are lovable people. But Christ gives us here a new commandment. And then in giving us the Holy Spirit, He gives us the power, the ability to fulfill that commandment. And then in a kind of a rare interruption of the red letters, Peter asks two questions And makes a bold statement. And Jesus' response serves as a warning to Peter and to us that we're not as strong as we think we are. So look at this warning in Peter's questions and statement. It's verse 36, 7 and 8. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? 
Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Immediately, Peter leans on his own understanding. But first, he needed a little bit of clarification. He's concerned for Jesus. He's been talking about glory. He's been talking about being lifted up. From where Peter sits, that's all kind of kingly talk. Being lifted up onto the throne of David. He's talking about glory, the glory of a king. But now Jesus is talking about leaving them. He's already said too much. Jesus has already, in Peter's view, said too much about his own death. And Peter, he felt the need to rebuke him for that, you might remember. And that didn't go over very well. And so he says to him here, are you going somewhere without us? Jesus assures him that while they can't follow him now, they will later. Notice he didn't answer his question. Where are you going? Where I'm going, you can't come right now. But you will later. His disciples will follow Jesus to glory. But not yet. But look at, look at Peter's pride, his love of self here. He says, I will lay down my life for you. He's trusting himself. I, I think Jesus' words back in verse 21, I think that those are ringing in his ears and Peter is trying to assure himself and the others that he's not going to be the one to betray him. One of you will betray me, Jesus had said back in verse 21. We know that's Judas. They don't understand that. They don't know why Judas has left. They thought he's gone to get food for dinner. They thought maybe he's gone to give money to the poor. G uh, Peter here protests a little too loudly, I think. I will lay down... One of them might betray you, but I'm going to lay down my life for you. And Jesus actually confirms his worst fears. He will, in fact, betray Christ, even tonight, three times before the rooster crows tomorrow morning at dawn. You will have betrayed me three times. This is a warning for us. Peter is he's actually loving himself here. He's already breaking this new command that Jesus is giving them by relying on his own power and not on the power of God. Do you see that? Jesus says, A new command I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And Peter says, I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus says, No, you won't actually. At least not yet. But Christ is going to use all of this. All of this to demonstrate his love for his own, his love even to the end. I, I fear that we are all too often more like Peter than we are like Jesus. But because his power is working in us, we don't have to fail. Instead, we're we're to keep our eyes on Jesus. Peter repeatedly throughout Jesus' earthly ministry 
Peter repeatedly took his eyes off Jesus and put them on himself. I will never betray you. I will die for you. Greater love is no one than this. Greater love knows no one than this, but that he lays down his life for his friends. Peter ran away, denied Jesus three times. We need to keep our eyes on Jesus. Consider this exhortation. I'll finish with this. It's from Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Beloved, loved ones, look to Jesus. Consider the glory of Christ. Meditate on the glory of the Father through the work of the Son. By this, remember, by this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. By this will all men know that you are my disciples, by your love for one another. A love to the end. A love that is willing to go to the grave a self-sacrificial love for one another. Let's pray. Father, the love of Christ, the love of the Father for the Son, the love of the Father for His people transforms us. Father, remind us this week as we need to die to ourselves, as we need to put to death the sin uh, that is killing us. Remind us this week of your great love. The love that sent Jesus to the cross for our sins. That we might love one another as you have first loved us. Transform our hearts and our minds, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.